Good morning, ministers. For some reason, I'm very excited to see the youth ministry uh, start up again. Excited about uh, Joe's curriculum for this season of training our young men and women of how to interpret the text, how to study the Bible on their own. It's important that we know how to do that, especially starting at a young age, so that as we encounter the ups and downs, the vicissitudes of life, that we'll be able to open the word of God even without, even without any assistance and get a word from the Lord and hear a word from the Lord in due season. What's happening, Doc? Good to see you, man. Uh, and even in, in due season to hear a word <laughs> from the Lord. Dude thinks I'm like so not traditional. Like what is wrong with that guy? <clears throat> I'm excited about, about the youth ministry and, and the ministry that Joe's gonna be doing. And Joe is called to that ministry. The ministry of serving the youth of Cornerstone Community Church. And speaking of calling, from a biblical perspective, there appear to be two calling patterns, two calling motifs, two examples of the interaction between God who calls and the people that he calls. Two distinct manners in which man responds to the call of God, two distinct, distinct manners in the way that God makes his appeal to us to draw us into his service and to draw us into ministry. And the first calling, the call of Moses, found in Exodus chapter 3, where God captures Moses' attention through a burning bush. He assigns Moses to be his spokesperson before Pharaoh to demand that Pharaoh let the people go. And Moses protested and protested and protested. The first thing Moses says to God is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Who I can't go, I can't do it. God in his patience reassures him and says, Surely I will go with you. Surely I am the one who is sending you. In other words, don't worry about it, Moses. I got your back. I'm sending you. But all I'm asking of you is that you serve as a ministry of presence before Pharaoh. I'm going to do all the rest. It is the most profound act of faith that the minister can perform. Just showing up in obedience to God. Just show up, Moses. That's all I need you to do. You don't have to worry about doing anything magnificent, anything great. I'm not expecting much of you, Moses. Just show up. Can you do that? Moses is not satisfied with God's response. In chapter 4 of Exodus, Moses basically tells God that he doesn't know who he is. He says, what is your name? I don't even know who you are. And when they ask me, I'm not going to know what to tell them. What is your name? And God says, Hold on, Moses, slow down. I am who I am. That is my name throughout all generations. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. That is my name, Moses. So question answered. Now pack your bags and let's go and talk to Pharaoh. But even that revelation was not enough for Moses. 
It didn't get him moving. It didn't get him to sign on to God's ministry plan for his life. Moses has another protest. And he worries before God that the people will not listen to me. The people will not believe me. I can't go. And God overcomes this objection by demonstrating to him his power through turning the staff into a snake. Moses, I have power. Don't worry. I'm going with you. I'm the one who is sending you. I am who I am. And look at what I can do, Moses. Have confidence. Now get up, pack your bags, and let's go do ministry in Egypt. Sounds like that should have been enough. But for Moses, that still wasn't enough. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, Moses gives God another excuse as to why he cannot accept this call to ministry. Why he cannot be a minister. He says to God, I am not eloquent. I am a man of a slow tongue. I stutter, you see. So I can't go because I can't even talk. And with that last objection, the conversation turns very serious. And God shoots back and asks him, who has made the human mouth? Who makes anyone unable to speak or to be deaf? Who makes anyone able to see or to be blind? Is it not I, the Lord? What are you talking about, Moses? You got a slow tongue. I made your tongue. What are you talking about? Now then, he says to him, now then, chapter 4, verse 12, go. And I myself will be with you. And I will instruct you in what you are to say. Don't worry about your tongue. Now, you ready now, Moses? Pack your bags. It's time to go to Egypt. But still, God's response for Moses was insufficient. Since God has been so patient with Moses, it appears Moses thinks he can disobey God as long as he wants. Because God has been so patient, Moses really believes that this is a negotiation that he's having with God. And as far as Moses is concerned, Moses can object forever. I have a million excuses why I cannot do your will. Moses has seemingly become a bit too familiar with the holy. And he just met God just a few minutes ago. He, he hasn't known him for a long time. He just really came into an encounter with God just a little bit ago. He just saw, the, and he's already, no, you know what? No, I'm, I'm familiar enough with you. Why well, feel like I can tell you no to your face? That's the way it is, God. Thank you for, for inviting me, but I, I happily decline. A lot of believers are like this. A lot of believers misinterpret God's command as being a mere suggestion, not giving God the reverence that he is due. Now, there's nothing wrong with protesting God's call. It's not uncommon for the minister to feel insufficient, to feel incapable. It's not a sin for the minister to express his concerns to the Lord. Nothing wrong with a little protest. Nothing wrong with that. Because God doesn't want to send anyone out into the harvest when they still have reservations. God wants his ministers to be secure within themselves, confident in his calling and trusting in his power to sustain them. And so God can be rather patient. 
God doesn't have a big problem with men and women who, for a brief period, reject their assignments. And in these instances, our protest serves as God's opportunity to reassure us, to build us up. But here's the warning. Each of us has to be careful to discern the difference between protest and rebellion. Each of us has to be careful to discern the difference between protest, just expressing my objections and my reservations to God, and rebellion. Moses is on the verge of being rebellious. And there comes a moment within every biblical example of protest against God's call where God is no longer willing to accept no as an answer. And Moses has pushed God to the limit. When finally in Exodus chapter 4 verse 13, the Bible says, and Moses says, please Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. No more excuses, I'm just not going. Send the message by whomever you will. In other words, go find somebody else. I am not going. I am too busy, I have a small young family, I am not eloquent enough, I don't measure up, I am not passionate about what you want me to do, and to sum it all up very nicely, I am not going. Send your message by whomever you will. That's how his final response may as well be interpreted. He's telling God in no uncertain terms that he is unwilling. No matter how much anointing you pour on me, I am not willing. No matter whether God turns his stick into a snake, a scorpion, or a camel, I'm still not going. Moses is refusing to go. And listen to what the text says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 14. The anger of the Lord burned against Moses. Uh-oh, you just crossed the line, Moses. God took the first disagreement, he answered your question, reassured you, he patted you on the back, he made you feel secure. He answered your second problem, I'm gonna speak, you don't have to worry about it, your tongue, your tongue is slow, I can work with that, don't worry. Well, now, now Moses is just outright saying, you know what, I was just making up those excuses, the reality is I don't wanna go and I'm not going and the anger, he ticked God off. <laughs> this is not a negotiation, Moses. This is a direction. Do you know the difference? There's a difference. Sometimes believers begin to think that the kingdom of God is a democracy. And God allows us to feel that way because he wants us to feel free, you know? But every once in a while he has to remind us, I am the king of kings. I'm, I, no, I'm the king. I'm the lord of lords. I'm the boss. When you got a good boss, a good boss doesn't always act like he's the boss. Am I, am I right, Mike? A good boss doesn't always act like the boss, always telling you what to do and pushing you around. No, a good boss allows you to be free as long as you're doing what he is requiring. He talks to you like you're good friends. How's your family? How's your children? You want some coffee? A good friend. When you tell the boss you're not doing what the boss is saying, all of a sudden you see a different side of that guy. <laughs> I've been so friendly with you, you're beginning to mistake my friendliness as if we're colleagues. We're not colleagues, actually. I'm the boss. 
Now the anger of God is kindled against Moses and it didn't even have to be this way. The conversation didn't have to progress. The conversation didn't have to regress to this point. But Moses has developed a bad habit. One that too many believers also have developed in our day and age. Where protest has become the tone and the tenor of our interactions with God Almighty. Where everything is up for de debate and for re-evaluation. No matter how plainly the text says it, everything can be debated with God. And everything or anything becomes ground for breaking covenant and communion with him. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther started a Catholic Reformation when he published a document he called Disputation of the Power of Indulgences. We call it the 95 Thesis. Basically, it was just a letter of protest of 95 practices of the Catholic Church that Luther found to be unbiblical and he was challenging any priest anywhere to come and debate these 95 issues with him. He was in protest. Luther wasn't trying to split the church, no. Had Luther had his way, he would still have been a part of the Catholic, he wasn't trying to destroy the church, he was trying to reform the church. But as with all old institutions, the church could not be reformed. And so, what should have been a Catholic Reformation became the Protestant Reformation. Protestant. Think about that when you call yourself a Protestant. You're saying that you are a protester. Protesting since 1517 and still protesting. It becomes a habit. We're protesters. That's what we say we are. Didn't have to be that way, but Luther and so many others walked away from the Catholic Church in protest. And today we're called Protestants, protesters. This title is more than just a label. Protest has become a habit in the church. Protest has become a habit in the church. And when we protest, then we have to part ways. And another denomination is born and another church is planted because we just keep on protesting. And since 1517, we have been rinsing, washing, and repeating, protesting about anything and about everything, things large and things small. We are addicted to protest. And for some, when they hear the call of God approaching, this habitual posture of protest becomes their de facto position. Wariness, hesitation, trepidation, second-guessing God. Because it is our spiritual manner, it, is, it has become our spiritual posture to protest. And sometimes God in his patience, sometimes God walks us through our season of disbelief. He walks us through our season of discontent. But sometimes God simply refuses to entertain. Sometimes God just calls us in a different way 
like the way he called Ezekiel, which is the second call. It is the way of the overwhelming call. You can read Ezekiel from chapter one to the very last chapter. You will never hear Ezekiel protest. You can tell that he had some misgivings about what was happening, but God didn't come and negotiate like he did with Moses. He didn't come and negotiate like he did with, with, with Gideon, no. God overwhelmed him with the call, the overwhelming call. And if over the last week or so, you've gone ahead and read the entire first chapter of Ezekiel, if you've read his testimony of this vision, you know that this statement is accurate. In this chapter, chapter one of Ezekiel, as Ezekiel attempts to, to, to describe for us what he saw, what happened, you can tell that his words are choppy. Go read chapter one. Sounds very strange, choppy sentences. Scholars wrestle with this particular chapter in the Bible. His descriptions of what occurred that day sound incoherent, sounds puzzling. A wheel was coming and then it was a fire and then it, he just sounds like, wow, so much was, he's overwhelmed by the vision that he's seen. He repeats himself over and over again in those first three chapters. As if he's trying to find the right words to convey that heavenly experience that he had on that day and he can't seem to find the words. He sounds discombobulated and incoherent. I was looking through some commentaries because I was thrown off by some of the words in Hebrew that he uses. And I came to find that he misspells words constantly in that first chapter. And commentators, I mean, I'm talking pages and pages of just trying to explain chapter one. Textual notes everywhere, this is what he meant. Maybe what he meant was this. How he was trying to say it was this. This happened before that happened. Like, wow, why is this so confusing? Ezekiel was overwhelmed. <laughs> what he saw blew his mind. He seems all over the place emotionally disheveled in his presentation, scrambling for the right words. How do we make sense of this ambiguous form that chapter, one's take, chapter one takes? How do we make sense of this ambiguous tone in Ezekiel's account? Ezekiel was overwhelmed because God abruptly invaded his space and propelled Ezekiel into such a high emotional state that every time he tries to remember that first encounter, Ezekiel still can't describe the experience in a very coherent way. He knocked me off my feet. He took my breath away. This encounter left an indelible mark on Ezekiel, which is exactly what it was designed to do. By this vision, God breaks down the prophet's objections before he even gets a chance to speak. By this encounter, God completely disarms Ezekiel, bypassing his reason and bypassing his will, circumventing Ezekiel's traumatic responses or his knee-jerk objections, filling Ezekiel with purpose and power to accomplish his assignment in Babylon. Whether he wanted to or no, he was overwhelmed by the call. 
In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4, Ezekiel reports, As I looked, behold, a high wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing intermittently and a bright light around it. And in its midst, something like gleaming metal in the midst of the fire. Wow. This curious, this peculiar sight captures Ezekiel's attention. But before he can figure out what he's even looking at, before he could get his wits about him, before he could judge what he was seeing, the vision began to expand. And Ezekiel says in verse 5, and within, within this great bright, this great metallic center, there were figures resembling four living creatures. Now, he calls them living beings in, in this particular chapter. But if you go and read chapter 10, verse 1, when Ezekiel sees these same creatures again, after Ezekiel has become more acclimated to spiritual things, he identifies these four living beings to be cherubim. They're cherubim. And this also gives us a clue that Ezekiel was apparently overwhelmed with this initial vision. By chapter 10, he understands the way the kingdom works. He's more familiar with his surroundings and spiritual, and spiritual realms. Ezekiel has more experience by chapter 10. By chapter 10, Ezekiel has been inducted into the ministry. He has become an official minister. And so now when he sees these beings, he's not nearly as overwhelmed as he was on his first encounter. These four living beings then are cherubim. Interpreted, a cherubim is called great and mighty. In the midst of the metallic substance, I saw four great and mighty living beings. In fact, the cherubim are the greatest and the mightiest of all of the angels. We learn later that these cherubim accompany God wherever he goes. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, we see that the cherubim are guarding the Garden of Eden so that mankind can never return. They are the greatest, they are the mightiest of all of the angels. What is the purpose of the angel? My, 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 my moody students, what is the purpose of the angel? Just Madeline. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says that angels are ministering spirits. Angels are ministers sent out to provide service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. A angels are servants, and they're sent to serve mankind. Did you know that? Angels are ministers sent to serve humanity. That's interesting. Angels are ministers on the behalf of God through service to humanity. And among all the ministering angels, the cherubim are the cream of the crop. They are the most faithful, they are the most capable, they are the most dignified. 
And these angels have not appeared as God's escorts. These angels have not appeared as God's forward guard. They have appeared to Ezekiel in order to serve him. What kind of service do you think these cherubim wanted to provide to Ezekiel then? The cherubim of God are sent to Ezekiel to provide Ezekiel with an example of what it means to be a minister of God. They are sent to Ezekiel to show Ezekiel what a minister looks like. Angels are ministers. He's about to get a crash course in what it means to be a minister, how ministers serve, what the attitude of the ministers of Jesus Christ should project to the world. The cherubim have been sent to educate Ezekiel, to give him his MDiv, if you will, to grant him his doctorate in kingdom things, if you will, to train him in what it means, what it looks like, what it should seem like to be a minister. Remember that Ezekiel has been placed in exile in Babylon. He has no example of what a minister should even look like. There, are, there is no temple. There are no priests. There is no one for him to model his ministry after. There are no prophets that he can study under, like the young prophet studied under Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6. They had someone who was an example of what it looked like to be a minister of God. Ezekiel doesn't have that. He's at a disadvantage. There was no school for the prophets like the one Samuel founded in 1 Samuel chapter 10. There was no one to show him the ropes of ministry. No examples he could learn from. And so God allows him to become acquainted with the minister of ministers, the cherubim. The ministerial team that God has ordained before the world was the cherubim. If you want to learn how to do ministry, who better to teach you than the minister of ministers? We and Ezekiel can learn from the appearance of these majestic ministers of God just what a minister of Jesus Christ should look like. From his disposition to his focus to his purpose. And here's what Ezekiel says to us in verse 5. That, that within this great bright cloud with its metallic center there were figures resembling four living beings and this was their appearance. The first thing he says that they had human form. They're angels but they had human form. I don't know if they always have human form, but they had human form for Ezekiel's sake. To teach Ezekiel that the, Ezekiel, that the ministers of God must be relatable. Write that down. The ministers of God must be relatable. The minister of God must recognize always that he shares something in common with the people that he has come to serve. It's an important lesson that every minister should and must understand that being a minister does not make you different 
Being a minister does not set you above your fellow man, but you have all things in common with them. The minister is sent to serve the needs of the people, especially of the people of God. And she, she can serve them best when she can most relate to their suffering and relate to their pain. The ministers of God must be relatable. You cannot serve the hurting unless you know what it means to suffer. The minister of Christ must recognize himself as being in complete solidarity with all humanity, relatable, approachable, and sympathetic to the needs of the people, sensitive to their cries. These cherubim comes to, come to Ezekiel in human form. And each of them had four faces and four wings. Write this one down. The ministers of God must be aware and agile. They had four faces, they had four wings. With their four faces, they are able to look in every direction. They are aware. With their four wings, they could take flight in any direction at God's call, at God's command, at a moment's notice, they were prepared. They were agile and they were aware, unbound by tradition, unfettered to earthly commitments. The cherubim were always ready to mobilize and the ministers of God must be always ready to mobilize whenever he calls. They had four faces and they had four wings. They were paying attention in every direction. They were aware of what was going on around them and they were prepared to move whenever God called. I like it. These ministers of ministers are giving you an example of what it looks like to be a servant of God. They knew what was going on, on in every corner of the globe, sensitive to every crisis, engaged with every calamity. Let me interpret that for you. Ministers watch the news. Ministers watch the news. Do you watch the news? Now, nowadays, you watch the news. You watch the wrong news, all you get is mad. Because a lot of what's supposed to be news is just opinion. I'm not talking about that kind of news. I'm talking about the C-SPAN kind of news, where you just go and get the facts. The Associated Press kind of news, where you just go and hear what's going on in the world. Don't give me your interpretation of it. Just tell me what's happening. The factual news. The BBC, who doesn't always get it right, but at least they give you the correct information about what's going on. The ministers of God should be aware of what's going on in the world around us. We have to know. Not just what's going on in Ukraine, not just what the media wants to give to us, but we must be digging even deeper to see not only what's going on in, in, in Ukraine, but what's going on in Cambodia. What's going on in Libya? What's going on in North Korea? We should know what is going on in the world. We should be looking in all directions. We should be ready to take flight in any direction that God calls us to at a moment's notice. Ministers watch the news. Ministers are interested in what's happening, not only in one place, but in the entire world. We want to have a broad picture of what is happening in God's world. Ministers pay attention to world events. This one's very important. Ministers pray about world, worldly affairs. 
Do you pray about what's going on in the world specifically? What's going on in Ukraine? In detail before God. The person tells me, I don't pray very often. I don't know what to, I don't know what to say when I pray. <clears throat> There's a whole lot to say when you pray. <clears throat> if you watch the news, there's a whole lot to say when you pray. You don't need to pray for yourself all the time. Just turn on, the, if you want to pray and you don't know what to say, turn on the news, watch for 15 minutes and get on your knees. Plenty to talk about. Plenty of concern, right? This is what ministers do. We are sent into this world to be custodians, to oversee God's creation. I described it to one family this way. Ministers are called to be the administrators of God in the world. We are God's administrators. Ministers can make decisions about things that are going on in communities, in cities. When we understand our responsibility as ministers of Jesus Christ, when we step into our roles as ministers, you'll recognize something. Ministers have administrative power. Ministers can turn things around. Ministers can pray crime out of neighborhoods. You can pray it out. I'm not talking about getting signs and walking down the street. Nobody's really, you can talk it out. Jesus Christ said ministers have the power to bind and to loose. He said, whatever you bind on earth, I will bind in heaven. Whatever you loose, I will loose in heaven. Do you believe that? Ministers have authority. And as we watch the news, we learn what things need to be administrated, what things need to be changed, what things need to be turned around, and we can cry out to God and ask for the change that we believe is needed. And this is how we partner with God in doing work in the world. There's always something to pray about. There's always someone to pray for. And we're ready to go wherever God calls us. As we're watching the news, we're ready to go. Lord, if you need somebody to go over there to those starving people and serve them, you can send me. I am available. I am always ready to go. I am aware of what's going on and I am agile enough to uproot and to go wherever I hear your spirit calling me to. Uh, that's a minister. And even if we cannot be in every place, which we can, we can't be in every place physically. We can send our hearts and we can be present in spirit when we lift up the hurting people of the world in prayer to God. The minister is aware and agile. And then the minister, the minister is steady in her commitments. The minister is unwavering in his duties. The minister is firm and confident in doing God's will. Look at how Ezekiel describes these cherubim in the next verse, verse seven. Their legs were straight and their feet were like calf's hoof and they sparkled like polished bronze. They had feet like the feet of a calf. Steady, stable, firm, sure. They knew where they were stepping. They were able to keep their balance at all times. Nothing could throw them off of their mark. They were balanced emotionally. 
They were balanced ethically. They were balanced spiritually. Balance. The ministers of God have to be balanced, have to be steady. Not becoming too dogmatic, yet not theologically lazy. Not overly invested in works of righteousness, but not neglectful of her duties. Not, 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 not poor, not, not traditional, but not completely untamed, balanced. Not all work and not all play, but always in. Always all in, in whatever venture or assignment God dictates, balanced. That's the minister. Next, the minister of God is conscious of his limitations. Write that down. The minister of God is conscious of his limitations. Ezekiel says that under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. Human hands. How weak is that? Big old angel with human hands. You'd expect him to have some big, great, mighty hands. Do some big, great, no, he, he, even the angel has limitations. Under his four wings, he has human hands. What a letdown. I was expecting him to raise his wings and see something great and mighty and just in regular old hands like mine. Dude, what can you do that I can't do? You just, you're really big and majestic, but my goodness, look at your little hands. My God. You have limitations. They're angels, they have a lot of power, but they don't have all power. Even the cherubim of God have limitations and they are aware of their limitations. And even more inspiring than the fact that they, that they know they have limitations is the fact that they are not afraid or ashamed for you to know it. All of us. Every minister included, all of us have limitations. I don't think anyone would disagree with that, right? Every minister has limitations. But I also know that many ministers try to hide their limitations from people. Many ministers try to pretend as if they have no limitations. Two weeks ago, I went to a conference, or a district conference, out in Avon, Indiana. And I went prepared to do a lot of administrative work. I'm on, the, I'm on the executive committee. So I went prepared to do a lot of administrative work, which is kind of boring and it doesn't really take much energy. And I found myself in the middle of ministry for three straight days to pastors, ministry to pastors, for three straight days. I'll talk about that some other time, the things going on in the church in America and the challenges it's presenting to the people of God and to the pastors. <clears throat> I found myself in three straight days of ministry to people. I was somewhat worn down by the time it was all over. Then I had to speak at the retreat on Saturday, the men's retreat, which I enjoyed very much. Thank you, Eric. I had to speak at the men's retreat, so I really didn't get a break. And I was standing in the back, and Hans was standing beside me, and I said, Hans, man, I can't stick around today, I'm just tired. A lot, a lot of pastors won't tell you they're tired. I have to always be smiling and shaking hands like they're politicians. I'm not a politician, I'm just a guy. 
And I know I have limitations. I said, Hans, man, I'm tired. And Hans reminded me, he said, you're an introvert. You've been running for like five days talking to people every day. You're out of energy. And when he said it, I'm like, that's exactly what it is. I'm an introvert. And I've been giving myself and talking to people constantly, constantly, constantly. And I haven't had my little secret place, my hiding place to go away. And now I'm just, I have limitations. Now, you let some people tell you, they'll say, well, you know what, no, maybe you're just not called to be a pastor. If you can't be around people, if you can't socialize and hang out all the time, maybe this is not your calling. No, no, I just have limitations, just like every other minister. I work the work of God despite my limitations, but I have to be aware of them. I am not God. And so, you guys don't know this, after church on Sunday when I get home, what do I do? I go in my bedroom, I turn off my light and close my door and lay in the bed and put the covers over my head for like six hours. I'm an introvert. It takes a lot of energy for me to be around people for long periods of time, it just does. And so every Sunday I do the same thing. My brother calls me, that was a really good sermon, man. Look, could you call me later, bro? I just wanted to sit here quiet for a little while. I've been around too many people. Yeah, limitations. You know who gets burned out in ministry? People who act as though they have no limitations. That's a big mistake. The ministers of God must be self-aware. You must be aware when you're running on empty. No, 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 just because you're running on empty doesn't mean God's gonna say, okay, you can sit down for a while. I know you're running on empty. No, when you know that you're running on empty, then you get on your knees in prayer and you ask God to fill you. I'm out. I've reached my limit and I can't do any more, but I gotta preach in like 30 minutes. Could you help me out? And God helps you out every time. He comes and he gives you the energy you need to do his work. And when it's over, you get back in your car and you're driving home, almost falling asleep. As soon as the work is over, you go right back into your limitations. But God, God causes you to rise to the occasion. Because as he said to Moses, I'm just sending you just to stand there in my place. You're not, you're not really doing anything, Calvin. Don't, don't get it twisted here. You're just standing there. I'm doing the work. Huh? Yeah. The minister has to understand that and be aware of your own limitations and not be afraid to, 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 to be uh, transparent with other people. That requires humility. That also requires not allowing other people to write your job description. I'm going to say that again. It also requires not allowing other people to write your job description. Not being the kind of minister who tries to live up to everybody's expectations. It will kill you. That is unhealthy and that is not ministry. That is people pleasing. And God doesn't support it and so he doesn't give you any energy to do it. <laughs> and so you'll burn yourself out. It's just some ministry. I'm talking to ministers, right? We all need to understand these things. The minister of Jesus Christ must be aware of his own limitations and not be afraid to allow others to see those limitations. (coughs) 
So we learned these three things today from the cherubim's example. We have many more things to learn from their appearance. And this is the, the homework assignment this week. Go home and just look at the appearance of, of, of the cherubim from chapter five, to, from verse five to verse 14. Read it again and again and see what examples, what lessons you can learn from just observing them. What can you learn from watching the ministers of ministers and the way that they perform? You do it yourself. And then, then when I'm preaching next week, you can look at your notes and say, yeah, I saw that, Pastor. You're not the only one who can see, brother. I saw it too. Do that. They're really good examples to learn from. These are the three things we've learned today from the cherubim's appearance. That the ministers of Jesus Christ are aware and agile. That the ministers of Jesus Christ are steady and unwavering in our commitments. That the ministers of Jesus Christ are conscious of our limitations and unafraid to be vulnerable. I know those things weren't in the notes that we gave you, but I wasn't intending to expand on this like this. So next week we'll have a part two. And because there's so much to learn from the cherubim, we may have a part three, but for today we're gonna to cut it right there and uh, pick up next week with the example. God gives his ministers examples to follow. And so that the ministers who raise you up, you observe them and you begin to pattern your ministry after them. Not doing exactly what they do, but watching their diligence, watching their vigilance, watching their commitment, watching their consistency, and it begins to rub off on you if you allow it to. Ezekiel had the best examples. So ask yourself that question. What examples of good ministry have you seen? What are the characteristics of ministers that you have come to admire? And are you imitating those models that you have seen in your own life? Ministry examples are necessary if you want to be an effective minister for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you have called us to Lord Jesus, you said to us that the harvest is ripe. And that we should pray for and we should desire that you would send ministers into the harvest. Here we are. Our hands and our hearts are open to you to serve in whatever capacity you call us to. Help us to hear your general call to every believer to love our neighbors, to serve the least among us. All of us are called to that. Help us to take that calling seriously. And as we press in, as we learn more of what it takes to make a minister, to be a minister, I pray, Lord God, that you would begin to fill us with hearts of service, to give us the ability, Lord God, to not be distracted by our own wants and our own needs and our own insecurities. But give us hearts of compassion so that we can look at the needs all around us, 
so that we can begin to engage this broken, this fallen, and this dying world to remind them that you love them, that you gave your life on Calvary's cross to save them. Help us to be those examples for believers and unbelievers alike. Help us to be those lights that shine in the darkness. Call us to become your ministers. In Jesus' name, amen.